Welcome to Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, Army Ranger, real estate investor, and income enthusiast. On this show, we uncover the keys to attaining financial freedom. There are so many people listening right now who are stuck in that day-to-day, nine-to-five rat race. Luckily, it's only temporary. Each week, we bring on guests that help us discover the steps to build financial freedom, passive income, and generational wealth, so we can live the life we were born to live. Money is freedom. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, and today's guest is Christopher Nelson. Christopher is an experienced technology executive, real estate investor, author, and co-founder of WealthWork Capital a real estate investment firm with a diverse portfolio of over 3,000 multifamily units, mobile home parks, and ATMs. Christopher shows technology employees how to achieve financial independence through creating passive income. He's currently finishing his book from no dough to IPO. College dropout to multimillionaire tech executive and real estate investor. Wealth Science, I bring you Christopher Nelson. Christopher, welcome to the show, brother. What's going on? Hey, Jesse, thanks so much, man. So exciting to be here, to be a part of uh, your podcast, to be a part of your journey. Uh, You know, I think it's so valuable. It's so important that people, especially people in this country, really understand two things that we have to seek our own financial literacy. We have to seek our tribe of other people who are trying to get down to what does it take to really take care of ourselves financially? And number two, it is a science. Like we want to have data, we want to make data-driven decisions, and we also need to understand at what point do we put some things at risk, adjust that risk level, low, high, or or medium, and then actually watch it run for a little bit before we add capital. You know, so so anyway, huge fan of of um, everything you're doing here, and super excited to see what what value and what information I can bring to to the listeners. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And so many people have reached out about the name and was like, man, what was the thought process in the name? You know, we love it. It hits the nail on the head. So I'm, gra- I'm glad it resonates with you. And I think it's going to resonate with a lot of, you know, your network and obviously our audience um, and stuff like that. But just to give you an idea, a glimpse, you know, maybe a peek behind the curtain, Christopher, the notes I have on you, I mean, your path and how you got to today zigzags in every single direction across the country, across the world. I mean, I've got I've got juice bar owner operator, tech IPO, real estate investor. I mean, today's today's episode is going to be so incredibly fascinating. It's it's going to be mind blowing for the people who don't know you, Christopher. I mean, could you take a couple minutes and introduce yourself? Sure. So you know, I am Christopher Nelson. I am uh, you know born and raised in Northern California, and uh, went off to college. College didn't fit, so I actually uh, went and lived abroad in Europe for a while. So I had to figure it out. And when I came back, you know, one of the things that I came to understand is like, I love technology. I love what it can do. I'm so excited by it. So I was able to go back to school, get a degree in cognitive science, computer science. And I went to work for a tech consulting company because at that point, uh, right when I went to work in 2001, right, we just had 9-11. We had the dot-com bust. 
So working for technology companies and especially those startup companies was considered very high risk. And I wanted something where I could really grow my career capital, you know, my, my experience and my results. I wanted to go somewhere. So I went to Accenture, but I'd already been investing. I'd already been reading Robert Kiyosaki. So at that point, I realized, okay, whatever I make, I got to figure out how to get into real estate. Well, a buddy and I uh, from college, we decided, well, what if we open some juice and smoothie bars so that we could actually then, you know, generate some cash flow and then we can go buy real estate. So that was the idea. So we did in Tucson, Arizona, we opened two franchise juice and smoothie bars and uh, ran that for a few years, but we didn't realize a couple of things. Number one is we got way over leveraged. And number two is that, you know, if you are over leveraged, when all of a sudden you get into something like a great recession and you're trying to compete a $4 smoothie against the $5 foot long, you know, you need to have some sort of a backstop. And so that literally tipped us over. And it was at that point that I realized, okay, I need to actually do something if I'm going to actually go get some equity back and try and get into real estate. So that's when I decided to go work for startup companies. At that point, you know, uh, they'd sort of shaken out sort of the weakness, I think, in the industry. There was a lot of, you know, large companies or, or great companies that were actually coming out of VC, you know, funded opportunities. And so I went to work for my first one, abject failure. I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't even sure what was the equity, what was the play. It was a bad founder, you know, being a bad boss. So after that, I sort of, you know, have this idea and I always tell people, it's like the idea when you actually figure out, oh, I'm going to put the chocolate with the peanut butter. Sounds weird, but it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so I took all of my, I'd been a stock investor for many years. I took what I learned there and I realized I need to actually go select these companies to work for like a stock. I need to look at it like an investor through the lens of risk. And so I realized that, you know, if I went to work for a very early stage startup, that's high risk, high reward. If I went to work for a company that was very close to an IPO, that's medium risk, medium reward. And then there's, you can go to work for great public companies. Google is one of them. They have great equity compensation plans and that's low risk, low reward. So I chose medium risk, medium reward, and I created a due diligence criteria, very similar to what we have for real estate or what you might do for selecting a stock. And I went to work for Splunk in 2011. And in 2012, we had an IPO and it turned into a multiple seven figure payday for myself and my family. And so then at that point, it became this journey of, okay, now I actually have this equity to invest. Then it was really ramping up the real estate. So, and that's where I spent the past few years. And I'm really putting all of what I've learned in that first part of the journey from no dough to IPO into this book that I'm going to be releasing in uh, the first half of 2022. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's, it's so incredible to think about that. Really, when I look at your kind of your history, it's like you've lived through the dot-com crash. You are in the tech space for that. You lived, you had an, uh, a smoothie shack or you owned and operated one during the 08 crash. You know, I'm, I'm curious, looking back on that, Christopher, like, obviously, you've, you know, you've owned and operated assets through multiple crashes, you've lived through two. How has, you know, living through those crashes kind of assessed your value of risk today? How has that kind of influenced your investing journey? Well, so, you know, I, I like that question because of the fact, like, it, it does get to all of our, what's our risk tolerance? I mean, I think what, what I learned, so, you know, out of 2001, 
I actually chose to be very conservative. I was conservative with what I call my career capital. I said, I want to go to work for a company that I believe will perform even coming out of this downturn. And that company was Accenture and that was the right investment. So I was able to actually build a ton of skills that I eventually was able to trade for that equity when I was ready to find the right company. So that's what I learned is like, I learned that plain conservative, there is upside. It does come later in the game, right? I didn't experience that upside till 10 years later. The other thing I realized and that I learned is, you know, don't get over leveraged, right? And don't, and the other thing is, is both my buddy and I, we went all in on, you know, these, these smoothie stores, we put in all of our savings and, and put everything in there. We weren't diversified. So now, you know, I have this concept in, in my main focus, especially at Wealthward Capital and educating technology employees is building a passive income portfolio and thinking of it as a portfolio. So you're not going all in on one asset class or one operator, but you're really actually putting your dollars in multiple geographies, multiple asset classes, key operators, so that you're able to then weather these financial storms. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think the power of diversification is, is so crucial when it comes to recession resistance or, or you know, whatever. That's super important. I'm, I'm super glad you brought that up. You know, when looking at kind of the structure of wealth work capital, what asset classes are you guys currently in? I'm, I'm understanding you guys are in mobile home parks. Uh, multifamily ATMs, I guess. How did you guys come across those asset classes and, and why in particular are you guys kind of honing in on those? Well, it's it's been a journey. And so so Wealthward Capital, right, is, is myself. We're investing our family's tech equity and we're doing it in front of people. So we're right now getting close to the million dollar mark where we've invested a million dollars of our own money in front of people. And we started the journey in multifamily. We saw multifamily in Central Texas, you know, in 2017, we moved out here from California and, and we saw the opportunity that, okay, Texas is bringing in a lot of jobs and it's in a lot of people are moving here. And so we realized that this could actually take the impact of the next recession. So that's where we started deploying capital first was in, you know, this well-known, well-understood asset class that we had studied up on. We've been investing in ourselves before. So we deployed capital in Dallas, Austin, and San Antonio is sort of the first half of our portfolio. Then guess what? 2020 happened. And Actually, things went very well. While we did have to withhold some payments for a period of time to build up some war chests, as soon as we actually saw coming out of 2020, we started, you know, um, you know, returning the capital again, and things started flowing. We've actually exited some properties and purchased some new properties. So that is truly the backstep of our portfolio. But then we realized in 2020, we saw some other asset classes that we had actually been experimenting with. Right. So my wife and I had made an investment in a diversified portfolio of ATMs that continued to pay throughout 2020. So then we said, OK, that's a phenomenal asset that has downside protection. So then we went and created a fund and brought that to the Wealthward community as well. And then, uh, you know, still circling and saying, OK, we are now super exposed in multifamily. The ATMs, we sort of put that as a nice little niche in our portfolio where are we going to now start really investing you know, more dollars and creating that next significant anchor in our portfolio? And that's when we uncovered you know, mobile home park and mobile home park investing. And we found 
you know, the tremendous need, number one, in this country for affordable housing. So there's an opportunity to not just invest and make a phenomenal return, but also to make an impact. And then we, you know, partnered with a phenomenal operator based out of Fayetteville, North Carolina, another army, army guy like yourself. And, uh, and then in the asset class itself, we found that it's actually, you know, if you have great operators, the financials, as far as the expenses are very low, cash flow is very high, and there's tons of opportunity there. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing you hit on is the demand right now for affordable housing in this country is insane. And people don't get that. And I'm really interested to hear what you think, like when you pitch like your tech buddies, like, hey, I've got this mobile home park to invest in. I mean, do you think there's still a stigma kind of surrounding that asset class, Christopher? Or what's kind oh. of some of the feedback that you get? I'm curious from your network. Oh, huge, huge. I mean, well, it is. I mean, there's a stigma like, wait, so you're buying mobile home parks. Like you know, the, the one thing, the one thing though, I'll tell you about technology employees is technology employees are used to go into, are used to going into areas that have been running in a specific way for a long time and disrupting that. So the one thing that you'll find is that uh, tech employees, they are open-minded and they're also, you know, skeptical and love a good, you know, uh, argument, you know, in the, in the sort of, um, you know, traditional sense, like, hey, they want to understand, you know, your thesis behind this. And so, you know, as I, I get into the thesis and really sort of articulate, number one, when you look at the raw numbers right now for the need for affordable housing, it's staggering, you know, for, you know, what is it, 100 affordable houses that are needed in this country, there's four available, you know, sort of, sort of out of every 100 people that need one, there's 43 available. Then you put on top of that the number of baby boomers right now that are retiring. 10,000 are retiring a day. Half of them have no savings and are going to be on fixed incomes. And the ones that actually were able to pay off their homes are actually looking to downsize to get into the parks. And the other day, you know, in our particular fund, we went in and we renovated a house and put it out on the market. And we had 200 people call in for that single home. 200 it blew our minds. Like we did not realize, I mean, we saw the numbers, but when you actually then get that inbound, um, it's intense and it's overwhelming. But I think that when you play out the thesis and when you really sort of break it down step-by-step, step, how the parks are run, how they match up to, you know, multifamily and operate, you can really walk people through that thesis and get their heads around it. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's so important to the demand. Again, just to go back to that, I don't want to gloss over this because I don't think people, I'm sure people out there are listening. They're like, why are these guys buying mobile home parks? But I think the demand is really important. And we were in a similar situation earlier this year, Chris, where we were under contract with 141 lots. And we did a test ad much like you're referring to. And we got 100 uh, replies in 24 hours. And people don't understand how incredible the demand is for affordable housing. But something else to kind of go back to, and I think you hit on it as well, is, you know, this is an opportunity for investors to improve communities, to, yeah. to change people's lives, because that's exactly, I know what my team is doing, what your team is doing. I mean, you guys are going in there and adding value to these properties. Um, it's, it's, it's super important. Uh, when it comes to kind of the risk factor in mobile home parks from a, a passive investor side, you know, what are some of the risks, I guess, how do you guys mitigate risk and what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think risk when, it, when passive investing, the number one risk is going to be the operator. It really is like, who are the boots on the ground? Who is in there operating the park? Who's in there doing the day-to-day? -day? That is the main risk because operationally, right? It's not, 
it's not as hard as you think, right? I mean, you're banging services, you know, water, gas, sewer, you have some underground infrastructure. But other than that, you're really managing homes, managing people and managing collections. And so I would say the risk lies with the operator. And what I look for is operators that do have that, been there, done that experience, right? People who have done that. Or what I also look for is because I am a startup guy, or I also look for people who've had success at higher levels in other uh, you know, places of their life. And they're actually now translating that into something new. And they really have a passion for it. And they also you know, are going to stick to their commitments. So that's really important to me as well. And then I also look for people that are really looking to optimize processes, right? When people are bringing technology. So I know for a fact, our operators, right? We're going cashless in all of our parks, right? We go to cut it over to a paid near me, go to cashless, that reduce a ton of risk from a, you know, physically transferring cash and cash getting lost to, you know, now un unintentionally transmitting diseases, right? So um, those things are very, very important, but I always look at the operator first and foremost. Yeah, I think the proven operator, and I think it was Mark Cuban who said, you know, we bet the jockey, not the horse. It, it's so important. It's so crucial. And, and it's, I know you guys, I know exactly what you guys are partnering with, and you guys are partnering with proven, incredible operators who are absolutely out there crushing it. So that that would be my main point too, to any, uh, to any passive investor. I think that's super important. You know, when looking at the returns profile that you see in real estate, and I think this is interesting because like you said, you've invested in stocks all your life. I mean, the returns profile that, that your fund in particular gets or that we typically see in real estate, how have you seen that kind of line up, you know, towards the stock market or into other assets that you can invest out there? Well, it's so, it's so difficult just because, you know, the interesting thing is, and this is one of the things that I, how I try to educate my investors is it's, it is comparing apples to oranges. It is because the, the one thing, and this to me is, is, is one of the things that I think that upsets me a bit about the financial services industry is that, you know, historically, when you look at when I, when I was really in the, you know, going to school in the late nineties and I was uh, studying, uh, you know, Hey, how do I create a great stock portfolio? It's like, okay, you're in stock and then you move to bonds. And there was this real division between stock and bonds because you had this growth vehicle and you had this income vehicle. And so growth it, the intention was all a lot of dividend stocks had gone away was your job is to just grow at all costs and you're supposed to expand. And then when you get to a point where you want to reduce risk, you put it into this other vehicle that is stable, that preserves your capital and gives you income. And so what nobody's talked about is in 2008, the bond market collapsed and that return is anemic. And, but they try and keep you in this box. So to me, I take a step back and, you know, I've made the most wealth that I've generated for myself and my family to date has been in the stock market going through IPOs with technology companies. And so I still see that as a growth vehicle and I have, you know, blended returns that give me growth out of that. But at the same time, I am not going to rely on that for retirement because the reality is, is that to get, you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year out of that, I'm going to have to then take that down and hopefully it grows faster than that. That's never been the strategy of a portfolio that we were given before. It's no, you put it into an income vehicle. So where is that now? That's in real estate. And real estate has always been the optimal, optimal income vehicle because it gives you four ways to make money, right? You have your cash flow, you have your equity pay down in some situations, you have your appreciation, and then you have your depreciation, your tax benefit. 
And so that's what we're essentially doing is we're moving it so that we're as a family, you know, I talk about this in our wealth word portfolio is that we're 50% in stocks, we're 50% in uh, these passive income investments. And the goal there out of our passive income investments is to generate $250,000 a year uh, with the lowest tax basis as possible. You know, and so that's that's really my strategy, and that's really how I think about it. Is how do I get that side of my portfolio tuned to give me cash? So when you look at the asset classes, what I'm finding is that in multifamily, multifamily has actually been over time because cap rates are getting compressed. It's not generating the cash flow, so that's not been giving me what I needed. Now, does it still give me? Uh, great depreciation. Oh yeah, it does. You go in and do a CapEx plan. Does it still give me great uh, forced depreciation and appreciation over time investing in Austin? Sure. But I need to now blend that in with different asset classes that are going to give me the cash flow. That's why we went into ATMs, super heavy cash flow, super heavy depreciation. And then now we're in mobile home parks where to me, this is the other opportunity for mobile home parks is there is an asset class really where uh, uh, multifamily was in you know, 2012, 2013. There's so many inefficiencies. You can actually buy, you can actually then get phenomenal cash flow. You can get you know, 9, 10, 11, 12% cash on cash return. And you can do cash out refis where you're then taking the risk off the table. I mean, there's a lot to do there. And so this is why we're very bullish on mobile home parks and bringing that in as a larger portion of our portfolio because we have income requirements and we won't compromise that. Yeah, I love how you hit on the four ways to make money in real estate. And it's so true. And people don't understand the one thing I just want to hit on there, the tax benefits that go into it yeah. is incredible. And in, in the world we live in today, I mean, it's crazy. Um, you know, what POTUS is doing with the IRS. I mean, if you're looking for a tax benefit and you're looking for a depreciable asset, I mean, real estate is right up that alley. And so many people out there, unfortunately, don't know that. Um, it's, it's so, so important. You know, I'm curious when you're educating a lot of your peers and your colleagues, and I know this is a big part of, you know, raising capital is, is the education part. You know, what are some of the limiting beliefs that people have out there that you help people crush when it comes to investing in real estate? Well, it's so interesting. Like I, I, cause I do a limiting belief. I think sometimes I would actually rephrase that where I don't know if it's a limiting belief so much as it's just a lack of knowledge. And that's the interesting thing. You know, I had a great conversation with a gentleman the other day who said, look, you know, uh, I just don't I just don't know this. Like, I know that this is good for me. Like, I know that I need to have real estate in my portfolio. I live in California. I see this real estate that's too expensive to purchase, but I am an accredited investor. I can't buy a home here. Help me get into real estate. I think that's what I'm finding more of that. Um, there is, there is sometimes a limiting belief that, you know, I think the one biggest limiting belief I contend with is, is there is a set of people in, especially in technology investors that believe in stocks and believe in venture capital, that they can grow a pile of money big enough that then their strategy is really that, you know, not 4%, but maybe a 5% or 6% where then they can just drain that, but they can have strategies where it can keep growing faster than they drain it because and i say that because they don't have an income component so they don't have something that's you know made to send them checks i do find that when i start educating people on 
okay, here's, here's how effective this income tool is. And when you think about what is a $100,000 of real estate income, where you have depreciation offset it, and you may have, you may be getting taxed in the low single digits, if any at all, depending on how much depreciation you accrue versus, you know, W-2 income, which would need to be like $135,000, $145,000 a year. That's when I see a lot of lights come on where it's like, oh, okay, now I see it. Like I can be getting almost, you know, the total percent of that. And, and this is where I get super excited because, you know, the more I see people, their lights click on, you know, then I see them sort of really saying, okay, now I have to, you know, start deploying my capital over here and really, you know, building up this income portion of my portfolio because that, that will give me the financial independence that I've really been seeking. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love everything that you just hit there. And I think that it's such an important, you said like hitting the light and it's like the light comes on. I think that's such a, that's like the fun part of this. It's really the education. It's like being, I picture, you know, the journey to financial freedom, almost like being a jungle and you and I are the guides leading people through the paths. And, and when, like, when people are like, oh my God, I wait, I get paid every month, you know, by doing this. It's like, yeah, dude, this is how it works. It's like, it's so powerful um, bringing people on this journey. I think it's one of the coolest parts of this whole part, this education piece is, you know, enlightening these people and, and just educating them. And like you said, it's not so much a limiting belief as it is just a, Hey, I didn't know that this is how it works. So I, I think that's so powerful, Christopher, Christopher, I'm glad you hit that. You know, when it does come to the raising capital piece and I, and I love talking about raising capital, there's a lot of capital raisers who listen to the show, you know, obviously yeah. you have that massive network you know, in the tech industry, you know, with the people who have been investing in your fund, I mean, are these all prior relationships or are these people who maybe, you know, watch some of the content and you do an incredible job uh, pushing content on LinkedIn and other platforms, you know, how have you really built the relationships with these people to educate them over the past couple of years? Well, so, you know, I, I've had a little different approach, right? Because, uh, you know, it goes back to what you actually said just a few seconds ago is, is I do have this Sherpa mentality of, of the fact of, wait a second, I have been to the other side of the jungle. I know how to navigate this forest. I want you to come with me. And so when I, you know, I was a very reluctant capital raiser. I have to be honest with you. So we were going and deploying our capital and we'd made a move here to, Austin and we started finding more and more opportunities and I was just sharing it with some buddies back home where we, you know, talked about investing in other things and they started raising their hands saying we want in. And then there sort of came this, we really need help like we don't know how to do it we're not boots on the ground we don't know who to trust. And there was this real moment where I felt like wow like my brothers and sisters in the tech industry, my eyes opened up who we work, you know, this 24 by seven lifestyle, like they're like me, like they don't understand how to get to retirement. They really need help. So when I started this, it really was just deep in the network in a lot of one-on-one -on -one or, you know, three-on-one, four-on-one type education of walking them through. And then I started growing it because other people started referring. And then as I started up the platform, I think to your point, um, you know, more and more people started coming in and I just tried to really build my business slow and with intention, because I also think that I want to make sure that I'm creating a business where I, I as the capital raiser, am not dependent on finding the next investment opportunity, because then all of a sudden I may be bringing something in subpar. It's like, no, I'm just sort of, you know, growing it uh, low and slow and just really trying to just, um, 
you know, really sort of bring in the right people on both sides, the right operators, and then the people who really want to invest, because that's the other thing is, um, I really like, if somebody comes and they say, yeah, I want to do 50 K and I think that's it, then they may need to go find somebody else. And, and the reality is, is because if you want to do this, if you really want to retire and be financially independent, you're going to need to look at hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, depending on your net worth, or you're going to need to look at millions of dollars being deployed over here to really create the income that you want. And so that's one of the other things that's really important to me is I really want to work with people that want to deploy, you know, capital. And, th and this is my whole model is we're on this journey to deploy, you know, a million dollars, do it in front of you, give you the results so that you can see and be fully transparent as to what we're doing. And then you can invest alongside of us. Yeah, I, I love the piece you hit on being slow and intentional. And I think that's so incredible. And it's like, I, I'm just picturing as you're as you're betting these deals and you hit on it, you know, these are your brothers and sisters. I mean, people you grew up with in the tech industry yeah. over the last several decades who are trusting you with hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. I mean, that is that is no simple thing. That is no easy thing. I mean, I can only picture the amount of betting that goes through a single deal uh, that one penny hits. I mean, it's it's incredible. Um, so I, I just thought that was powerful. I mean, how you've worked through that process and have really taken that part seriously. I think that's super, super, super important. It, it can't be undermined. Um, as, you, as you've built these relationships, you know, in the industry, I mean, what's been some of the feedback? Obviously, someone who just invests in your fund and whatever they've learned, you know, for the first time about, wow, this is how the returns work. This is how depreciation works. I mean, what's been the general feedback from the fund so far, Christopher? Well, the general feedback from, you know, uh, the, the overall wealth for capital fund, you know, has really, been, or, you know, the, the portfolio that we put together has just been like, I didn't know it could be like this. Like, I didn't know, you know, and, and there were people who were at different stages. I had some people that were, you know, getting ready to retire that, you know, had a tremendous amount of equity that needed to then deploy it and have been with me along this journey for the last, you know, four years and have been deploying significant amount of capital. And guess what? Now they have, you know, checks coming in on a steady basis, whether that's monthly or quarterly. And they're really enjoying seeing the returns. And, I think it's, you know, it's really understanding that this is a lifestyle and this is something that really needs to be communicated. More people need to know about it. I think the people who, I mean, the interesting thing is that the people who have actually been investing with me the longest and have seen the most results are also the people that are my biggest advocates that are telling more people about it because they're like, you need, you know, they're calling up, you know, maybe people that they've worked with that are then, you know, earlier in their career saying, you need to start this now, you know, because you can be ahead of me further on. Um, I think, you know, in the, in the mobile home park fund that we're, you know, in right now, I think that as we've been showing, you know, the first few months to results and the parks that we've taken online, I think that the people there are just getting wowed by the cash flow factor, just because, you know, the messaging has been around the multifamily, like, okay, we're, we're ratcheting down cash flow, or, you know, some people do a cash flow share where there's no equity, and, and that some people that is the right fit for their investment thesis. But now that they can actually see everything, they're getting very excited because they can really see, okay, this can be, again, another, you know, solid part of our portfolio as we're going into the next, you know, three to four years. 
Yeah. And like you said, the aha moment, I think is, is crucial. And, and just people, and I, I stress this even to people my age who are in their twenties right now, it's like, Hey, you guys got to start taking this serious now and start looking at the, the financial education, because you're going to get to your forties, your fifties, your sixties, whatever. And it's the wrong time. I mean, it's never too late to start, but it's like, man, if you can start in your twenties, I mean, I, I know me, Chris, I'm 26, brother. I'm just thinking of where I'm going to be at 36, 46, 56. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's so powerful. And it's, you know, I just grew up in that mindset and read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was in college, much like you. And, you know, I would tell anybody the earlier you can start, the better. So I I love how your education and your referral process is really starting to, you know, beat that home where it's like, hey, the earlier you can get into this, the more powerful and compounding, you know, effect it can be. So I think that's really special. Um, as, as we get ready to wrap up here, I just wanted to hit you with a couple more questions. Um, yeah. A couple of these are just about the tech industry, because again, you're the first tech executive that we've had on Wealth Science. And I think that's really, really cool. You know, when it comes to the tech industry as a whole, you know, I feel like in 2021, we live in this, you know, society where people want to start on Monday and find the next Snapchat and be living in the Caribbean on Friday. What do you think are maybe some of the misunderstandings out there about tech startups and IPOs in general? Well, it's so interesting. Like there's so many parallels to, to investing, right? Where, where if you're looking to get rich quick, you're going to play in this area of high risk, high reward And the people who play over there, they generally get soured to the whole thing. And they usually then complain how, oh, the game's rigged and it's a bust, but you're playing, you know, you're playing at the roulette wheel, right? I mean, the odds are against you. And so this is what I've seen too in the technology industry is, you know, I I see it. I see the young guns who come out and they go, oh yeah, I'm going to go to the next startup. And they're going to a 35, 40 person startup and they're really, really struggling and they're, they're, you know, burning out on this one because they're working really hard. They're also not getting the same salary they could get on the other end of the spectrum, what people are completely overlooking is if you go to work for a Google, if you go to work for a Facebook, if you go to work for a Lyft, you can actually get a salary package where they'll usually give you a high salary, right? Generally speaking, tech you know, pays more, but you can get somewhere, let's say $150,000 a year. They're going to also match you with equity, an additional a year in equity. And some of those give liquidity in the first month. So it's totally reducing the risk. And so while you're not getting this fabulous upside, these guys who imagine they're going to make 10 or 15 million and don't realize like they're on a journey for years, they totally overlook the fact that there are tremendous ways to actually generate that because you know, again, and what I tried to teach my tech employees, you know, and this was the model that we've lived on is, you know, generally speaking, you're going to get a salary, you're going to get a bonus. So salary, you live in your salary, you use your bonus for your vacation money or your little splurges, all your equity goes to investments, right? Either is that, you know, getting diversified in your stock portfolio, or is that buying real estate, build your financial fortress, you know, with that tech equity, use that to be every brick in that, and then make sure that you live within your salary and then you can enjoy your bonus. And that will actually, you know, do great results. The other thing most people overlook is they look, they overlook what I call, you know, I, I, people don't usually understand it. Real estate people do is the value add play. And this is where I've played, you know, for the last, uh, you know, 10 years, right. After my first mistake, the last four companies I worked for, three of them have gone through an IPO. And people are like, wait a second, like, okay, three out of four, like that's, 
you know, 75%, like what, what kind of odds are those? Well, people are doing it all the time. There's a pattern out there and you actually go through and you do financial due diligence and you look at these companies, but you, you join them, you know, somewhere between, you know, 24 and 18 months before the IPO. So you're reducing your risk. So I'm not working for six years, you know, out of those three, I definitely had one that, you know, I put in some time, it didn't pan out. So I went to the next one and, you know, I landed at GitLab and we just had a tremendous IPO here in October, you know, and so that was, you know, 17 months to go from, you know, start of employee to, you know, phenomenal IPO. And this is what I'm trying to communicate in the book is that if you look at your skills and your talent as your career capital and you want to build that and you want to nurture your career capital, you can then go and trade that for equity at the right companies but you have to pick the right companies and you have to have a strategy to really go and execute this. And then you can actually, you know, put some gold coins in the bank. Yeah. I mean, I think we live in a world of just instant gratification. Again, people want to start on Monday, find the next Facebook on Tuesday and be living in the Caribbean on, on Friday. And like, when we look at like the science of wealth and how true wealth is built, I mean, you hit on it. It takes in order for you to achieve those odds, I mean, it took years of living, breathing, eating, sleeping that industry for you yeah. to understand how it works. So I, I, I just love that mentality. Uh, you know, it's not an instant gratification world. Nothing, you know, you know, nothing truly great is built overnight. It takes it, decades it, and decades. I mean, anything it does. you know, and, and I think, you know, is, as you know, you know, too, like we, you have to, you got to put in the time and truly i believe that building wealth is a discipline and it really is that focus and then also you know i also think that it is um you know having a bit of a uh adventurous heart too in the sense of okay i want to get uncomfortable right okay i want to get into real estate or i know when you know i left consulting which was going very well i had a good career track there you know and going into the technology that was definitely taking a risk at well as well but again, I was willing to then, you know, go and put in the work and, and do the analysis and understand, okay, what's happening under the covers here and make observations so that I was making very, again, from the wealth science perspective, I, I looked at my first decision to go work for a, uh, a, a startup company, very emotional. It was emotional-based decision. In fact, I didn't realize that I was actually burnt out. I wasn't able to talk about it. So I was actually moving away from fear. Like I was just trying to move towards something that I thought was going to soothe me. And I realized I made an emotional decision. And we all know in investing or in life, you make an emotional decision, you can choose poorly. And I did. Then when I went back and I made a you know, very disciplined decision and very uh, financial focused decision, guess what? I reduced my risk. And all of a sudden I was able to get some significant reward out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so it's so important. There's just no undermining it. Again, you know, tr truly incredible things just can't be built overnight. Uh, it takes the right discipline and the right systems and processes to lay the foundation to achieve that that financial freedom. So yeah, I, I think all those points are great. The last thing I wanted to hit on, Chris, before we wrap up and before we jumped on today, we were talking, you know, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, a book we're both reading. And, and David is obviously in the book, belting the Ranger Creed, you know, between the chapters. And he's a huge believer in mindset and, and the warrior of the mind and stuff like that. I mean, when you look at your own career, I mean, even thinking back to the dot-com crash, to the smoothie shack, to multiple IPOs, book dropping, I mean, where you are today, I mean, the mindset piece that goes into that, 
you know, what were some of the mindset hurdles and, and what did that process look like? Yeah, that's great. I mean, because Goggins has actually really given me a bit of a language. Like I didn't really understand, um, you know, my mindset. And quite honestly, before I actually read the book, I was really actually, uh, I think almost like, like himself in his journey. It's like, I didn't understand people that didn't have my same mindset and I couldn't really articulate it. And he's given me this language. And I think, you know, a couple of things that I realized, number one is I realized that I had to go, the, the failures that I had at youth, like some of the things that I had and some of the things that I challenges I had growing up, I went and faced those early on. And I sort of checked out of college and I went and took some time and I got myself in my, I got my head right because I wanted to go forward with sort of a clean slate in defining myself as who I was as a man and who I was as a person. So that's one of the things that I learned is I sort of went and did that heavy work up front. And then I think part of it is, is yeah, I did. I grew up in a bit of a blue collar environment and it's super important because I have sons too, is I was never afraid of hard work. Like I was always taught that, you know, if you want results, you're just going to have to work hard, like working hard is part of it. Uh, and that again, doesn't mean kill yourself. Like you also need to have a good regime of rest, but you will have to work hard. That's always been part of it. And then I've, I've just always been somebody that I want to challenge myself and I want to get uncomfortable. And I think using the David Goggins terms, like I've always wanted to be uncommon amongst uncommon people. So it was, I always felt comfortable putting myself around people that were achieving more. I mean, that's one of the things in part of my story is I always sought out mentors who were, you know, really pushing themselves and, and could, would be willing to pour into me and teach me. And then um, along the journey, I mean, I just definitely had moments where I've been like, you're getting too comfortable. You need to get uncomfortable, whether that was, you know, after five years at Splunk, where I was, you know, still, you know, making, you know, a great salary and harvesting good equity, but it's like, no, I had to keep moving on the journey. I, I was getting, you know, too comfortable in those satin sheets. You know, I had to go out and, and hit the streets again. Um, but those are part of it. And, and I, I think that mindset is critical because I think that when it comes to personal finances and things, sometimes people feel shame. They feel embarrassed for where they situations they've got themselves into you know, and I know myself, like when we went to that whole smoothie bar thing, we had to shut them down and we literally lost all of our money. I felt really silly. I felt really stupid, but I realized that sitting admiring that wasn't going to fix anything, right? I had to take a hard look at it and say, okay, what am I now going to do different to get a different result? And where am I going to focus, you know, my energy? So anyway, I think that was, a, that was a bit of a long answer, but I, I think when I, when I think about you know, Goggins, and I think about the mindset thing, like I'm definitely, uh, yeah, able to pontificate a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and just to, you know, to cap this off, I mean, success begins at the end of your comfort zone. And, and like you said, I mean, you're getting comfortable and it's like, this is only, you know, a plateau of where I'm at. What am I truly capable of? And when you hit that last chapter and, and Goggins really kind of hits that home, it's, it's super powerful. But I love that mentality of always having, you know, upward growth. And it's like, you know, what am I, what am I really, you know, capable of at the end of the day? If I, if I really put myself to it, you know, I know this is comfortable. Like you said, I'm in, I'm in the satin sheets right now. I'm eating yeah. good. There's food on the table, but it's like, you know, what if I got to the next ridge line? You know, what's on the what's on the other side of that? So, you know, I appreciate yeah. you, Christopher. I mean, today was amazing. 
This was incredible. You have, again, a story that zigzags across the world and where it's brought you today is changing people's lives and helping them attain financial freedom, which I think is absolutely amazing. You know, Christopher, people who want to learn more about you, hear more about you, were inspired by today's episode. Where are the best platforms to reach you on? Well, the best platform right now is you can go to my website is wealthword.com. So that's W-E-A-L-T-H-W-A-R-D, Wealthword, moving you towards wealth. And then if they want to know more about what we're doing in mobile home parks, go to thrivecommunity.fund. If they go to thrivecommunity.fund, you can find more about what we're doing in and around the mobile home parks. I appreciate that. And, and just so I know, when does your book drop as well? I'm going to jot that down. Well, the book right now, so I am shipping it off to the editor on Monday. Uh, so at this point, I mean, we're looking at probably like uh, April timeframe. April 2022. No doubt yeah, to IPO. I'll come back on the podcast and we'll, we'll break down the book, man. We'll break Dude, it down. I can't wait to, yeah, I can't wait to read it. And I'm sure there's going to be so many amazing things in there. So again, Christopher, today was amazing. I appreciated a story that again, goes all over, you know, uh, smoothie, you know, smoothie operator, real estate, tech IPO, uh, and all ended it with talking some David Goggins mindset. So Christopher, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you again for coming on Wealth Science, brother. My pleasure. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Thanks, brother. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Wealth Science Podcast. Take some time to subscribe and leave us a review. It really is the basis that helps us continue to bring on amazing guests each week. We have another incredible story to share next week, and I'm certain it's going to add value to this community. Please do not hesitate to reach out if there's anything I can do to help you in your journey of attaining financial freedom. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.